Welcome to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday. Welcome into Soccer Morning, WorldSoccerTalk.com, covering the world's game better than anybody else. I mean, let's just put it out there. Let's be honest about this situation. Why beat around the bush? We, uh, we kill it around here, and we're killing it today. Two of my favorite guests on the program on a Thursday. You could not ask for more. Eric Gomez covers Mexican soccer for many an outlet, has done so for many a year. He will join us in the next segment to talk about the Ligia playoffs in Mexico. Tigres, Pumas, one, uh, or sorry, two matches for a title. We also talked to, to Eric about the uh, potential movement of Mexican players. Carlos Vela still out there. Marcos, Marco Fabian now has some rumors connecting him to an MLS move. We'll talk to Eric about that. Uh, and the Mexicans killing it in the Champions League, including Chicharito Hernandez, uh, who just cannot stop scoring. Also on this program, Andrew Mangan from the world-famous Ars blog. He will join us on a day of triumph for the Gunners as they win against Olympiacos 3-0. Olivier Giroud with a hat trick, and that leads Arsenal into the round of 16 in the Champions League. Very good set up for Andrew Mangan to come on and talk positively about his team. Sometimes I feel like every time we get Andrew on, it's to dump on Arsenal. We're not going to dump on Arsenal today. I mean, we'll talk about some of the issues, but we're not going to dump on Arsenal today. Ahead of Eric Gomez, let's hit the news. We'll roll through first and foremost. Again, the Champions League. Olivier Giroud scoring three goals against Olympiacos. As the Gunners advance into the round of 16, they needed a big win. They had to win by multiple goals. And here it is. They put uh, a three spot on the Greek side and are, are now in the, uh, in the knockout rounds of the tournament. You also had Chelsea winning two nothing against Porto as they advance in the tournament. <clears throat> you also had, uh, Roma moving on with a zero zero, a, a bit of a deflating zero zero draw against Bate Borisov at home in Rome. Uh, but it does the job for Roma as they advance. Bayer Leverkusen comes up short as they draw with Barcelona. 1-1, that is uh, the aforementioned Chicharito Hernandez. And his side, KAA Ghent out of Belgium. The first Belgium, uh, Belgian side to qualify for the knockout round in 15 years. They came back in dramatic fashion and beat Zenit St. Petersburg 2-1. Zenit wins that group. He also had a 1-0 win for Dynamo Kiev over Maccabi Tel Aviv. A 2 nothing win for Lyon over Valencia. Of course, that's where uh, we have the Neville brothers, Gary Neville having taken charge of Valencia, uh, a press conference afterwards in which Gary Neville said, we don't have anything to complain about. He seems to be charming people there even as they lose that game. Yesterday, right as the Champions League games were getting underway, MLS dropped a bombshell. They announced a $37 million, I'm going to put this in quotes, $37 million investment in player salaries. This increase comes from a jump in the TAM, the targeted allocation money, which was introduced this year, of $800,000 for each team over the next two seasons, for each of the next two seasons, $1.6 million total. Also, an investment of $125,000 for the next two years uh, for homegrown player signings. So, MLS, again, uh, painting this as an investment of $37 million in their player, uh, in their player salaries. We will talk about this. We will flesh this out. We will analyze this here and on Sirius XM today because while it does seem as though this is a positive step for MLS, it clearly comes at the, um, it comes 
to the detriment of the current player pool in the league as the league looks to bring in new players. And we'll talk about whether or not the, uh, the, the MLS Players Union miscalculated in their CBA negotiations, again, as they aimed for free agency, perhaps missed out on pushing for a larger increase in the salary budget. The league is investing in salaries, but they're doing it in a very targeted way. Fans in Hawaii have filed a class action lawsuit over the canceled U.S. Women's National Team game there. Uh, the fans seek uh, damages for travel expenses. Now, of course, the uh, U.S. soccer did refund their tickets uh, for that game. Fifteen or 16,000 pe- people who bought tickets uh, were refunded their ticket, uh, their ticket prices, their ticket uh, costs. But the attorneys for this class action lawsuit says fans flew in from the, uh, from the mainland and outer islands to watch the match that was abruptly canceled. She says one plaintiff from Los Angeles spent $1,000 on airfare, hotel, and parking expenses, and that is the money that these fans are attempting to recoup through this uh, class action lawsuit. Orlando City has parted ways with general manager Paul McDonough. McDonough was on the job for two years in Orlando. His responsibilities Included player personnel moves. Those are now have moved on, have been given to the new, quote, chief soccer officer, unquote. I'm using that only because I've never heard it before, but it is his title. Armando Carnero, Carnero from, uh, excuse me, from Benfica, the former head of the Benfica Academy that Orlando has tempted away, uh, brought him to the United States. He will take on those, uh, those, uh, responsibilities formerly held by Paul McDonough. This is a shakeup that comes as a bit of a surprise because Orlando had a strong first season because Many people in MLS thought that they had uh, done a good job of building their roster and that McDonough was a key part of it. McDonough drafted Kyle Laren. He signed Darwin Saren. He put together a roster that survived injuries for Kevin Molino and Breck Shea. Uh, Paul Tenorio of the Orlando Sentinel has a full write-up of this move over at orlandosentinel.com. So go check that out if you're looking for a little bit of the background on on this decision. Again, Paul McDonough, two years in Orlando City, or sorry, in Orlando, working for Orlando City, and now he has moved on. Armando Cañero, this is a, a, a club that has gotten very Brazilian and very Portuguese from its leadership perspective in a short time frame. Of course, Phil Rollins is the public face of the team, but we know the money comes from uh, Flavio uh, Augusto da Silva, and we will see whether or not this reaps benefits for Orlando City. And, of course, they're also starting the women's team down there as well, and that will be under Carnero's purview uh, as, so- as chief soccer officer. Uh, Carnero is still in the process of mastering the language. This, is, again, is from Paul Tenorio's piece, as well as the inner workings of the league. He attended MLS Cup in Columbus along with Phil Rollins. Uh, of course, he worked with Benfica's academy and B team. They believe he can bring that same sort of success to Orlando. We shall see. It would be a pretty big coup Orlando City if they can get some really big stuff out of their academy in the short term. And again, MLS investing in the academy to a certain extent. Uh, Tigres hosting Pumas tonight. First leg, Liga MX Liga final. We will talk to our friend Eric Gomez about that, setting the stage. Tigres, of course, spent a ton of money coming into this season, including on Andre uh, Pierre uh, Gignac, who has been a success. But now they need to make something. They need to show, have something to show for it after they crashed out. Well, after they, they came up short in the Copa Libertadores. The first leg will be at the Estadio Universitario tonight. That gives Tigres a chance to stake themselves to a lead. Of course, Tigres the favorite, despite the fact that Pumas finished higher in the standings. Tigres a bit distracted with that Copa Libertadores uh, campaign. All right, here we go. That's setting the stage. That's doing a good job. I think, we, I think we've done it. Eric Gomez, Mexican soccer, Liguilla final, Carlos Vela, Marco Fabian, Mexicans in the Champions League, all of that on tap. Don't go anywhere. Soccer Morning, WorldSoccerTalk.com.
Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. All right, we keep you on your toes around here on Soccer Morning. I did promise Eric Gomez, but we've had a change of plans. We've shifted things around. Eric will come later. First up, Andrew Mangan from Ars Blog joins us now to talk about Arsenal, his beloved Arsenal. Andrew, how are you? I'm well, Jason. How are you, man? I'm doing well. All right, so and Arsenal's doing doing well. Uh, the the, the <laughs> Champions League campaign took some ups and some downs. It was quite the roller coaster. It came down to yesterday against Olympiacos, and they and they delivered. And Olivier Giroud delivered, Andrew. In a big way, didn't he? I mean, what a what a time to get your first hat trick for the for the club. Um, you know, when you look at the players that Arsenal had out yesterday, the guys that they were missing, uh, Alexis Sanchez, uh, Danny Welbeck, Jack Wilshire, Santi Cazorla, you know, these guys who, who add a lot to Arsenal, there's a big burden then put on the rest of the team, isn't there? And, and Giroud, um, people will say he's hit or miss. I think he's a bit more hit than miss, but he has those games where sometimes it doesn't quite go for him. But this, I think, was probably his best performance in an Arsenal shirt. As you said, it came out at a wonderful time for them. Uh, and with the injuries have been so much of the talk recently. It's good to, to be able to, to, you know, to succeed in spite of the injuries because I think that that will give them the emotional push. Uh, to believe that not only is something possible in the Champions League, now that you've made the knockout rounds, Andrew, but there's something still on the table for the league. I mean, certainly in a good position. Sure. I mean, I think you're right there. That's a really good point because, you know, if you do go into a game without players who are really important and you think about Alexis and how important he's been from an Arsenal point of view, I mean, the confidence yesterday going into the Olympiacos game would have been much higher if Arsenal had Alexis Sanchez. But to go and do what they did and do it without him... I think that really does instill some confidence and belief, particularly when one of the guys who's been asked to fill in for him, Joel Campbell, uh, stepped up as well and made a big contribution to to the Arsenal performance yesterday. So, yeah, I think you're right. It shows that there's more depth in the squad than people might think. Uh, and to go away from home and do what they did at a ground they'd never won at before, I know the circumstances were a little bit different. Uh, it was a, fa- a fantastic performance. Giroud obviously caught the eye with his goals, but I think as a collective performance, it was really mature, really, int- uh, really intelligent, uh, and thoroughly deserved the win. Well, give me a give me a sense of of, of what the approach was because a, a lot has been made about um, about Arsene Wenger and 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 how he's had this team play and and so obviously there are circum circumstances dictate often um, whether or not you're going to go out with an aggressive approach. They had to have goals in this one. I, I didn't get to see the game myself, Andrew. So give me a sense of how he set them out and then who was crucial to making that uh, that tactical uh, approach work. What was interesting was maybe the first 15 minutes, Olympiacos looked quite dangerous at times, and Arsenal felt a little bit imbalanced uh, rather than unbalanced, imbalanced. And he switched Theo Walcott from the right to to the left and Joel Campbell from the left to the right. And that seemed to make a difference. Um, It took them about 25 minutes to really threaten. Uh, there was a great chance for Matthew Flamini, of all people, uh, set up by Joel Campbell. He he hit the bar, and I think whatever that did, that kind of sparked Arsenal into into life from an attacking point of view. Uh, the the first goal came, I think four four or five minutes after that, and I think the first goal kind of preyed on Olympiacos a little bit because they knew, right? Well, if we score a goal, it's going to make life difficult for Arsenal. But if we concede another goal, then we're out mm-hmm. if the scoreline stays the same. So I think they were they were sort of caught 
between a rock and a hard place, whereas Arsenal were very clear about what they had to do. They knew they had to go and get another goal. They did that in the second half. And at 2-0, it was a great position. Then it becomes a little bit precarious for Arsenal, of course, because one more goal uh, for them means that Olympiacos need three goals. So you've essentially won the tie if you get another one. Yeah. But if you concede one, well, then they're going through because of the head-to-head. So yeah. it, it was good to see Arsenal actually decisively um, uh, kill the game with that third goal. It was a, a very good pressure penalty from Giroud. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking at you know a recap of the match here. Um, uh, Giroud is the fourth Arsenal player to score a hat-trick in the Champions League, which in this group, uh, Henri, okay, of course, I understand. I expect Thierry Henri to be on the list. Nicholas Bentner and Danny Welbeck are the other two, uh, which is a little <laughs> bit of a surprise. Uh, you know, as you said, um, Arsenal hasn't won there. But Olympiacos has been very good against English sides at home, so uh, they, they did overcome a couple of those maybe statistical anomalies. Uh, you know, it's a little bit of random uh, and small sample sizes here, but they did something that maybe wasn't expected. And again, as a, as an Arsenal fan, uh, Andrew, and as somebody who covers and talks about this team all the time, maybe you did not uh, quite hit the depths, but there was so much. It, it seems so negative heading into this game. Um, is there? Do you think any of that impacts the, the team? I mean, I certainly, again, the injuries and the questions over why there are so many injuries and, and, and over here in the States when, when, when the, uh, when the analysts uh, that are covering our champ, you know, cha- doing our Champions League coverage talk about Arsenal, it tends to be more about the problems than any of the strengths. Yeah, I mean, I can understand that to an extent because if you look at the way that Arsenal, if you looked at the group when it was drawn, you would have said, well, first Bayern Munich, second Arsenal, and really that should be that. You know, it, the, the group shouldn't have been as challenging as it was for Arsenal. Um, so I can understand people being happy with the achievement or, or, or giving credit to the achievement, but you've also got to ask why it was that Arsenal let themselves get into that position in the first place. I don't really think it had much to do with injuries. I think it had to do with perhaps underestimating the opposition uh, in those first two games. Uh, there was obviously a red card in the Dinamo Zagreb game uh, that that proved very costly because, you know, with 10 men away from home in Europe, it's it's always really difficult. But, uh, you know, I think where where it comes from as well is that you look at the... If you look at what Arsenal are missing, if you look at what Arsenal do and then look at what Arsenal are missing, you can see how things could, could be better. Yeah. You know, so you look at an Arsenal team in the last few weeks that, that drew away at Norwich and lost away at West Brom. We can give absolute credit to the depth of the squad and the way that they performed in that game last night against Olympiacos. But you know you you can't um, you can't do that in every game. I just don't think it's realistic to do that in every game when you're missing so many players. So you look at those two league games I mentioned, and you wonder: Well, would Arsenal have had some fresh legs? Would they have got more from those games if they had Danny Welbeck fit, Jack Wilshere fit, uh, Aaron Ramsey had been fully fit, Theo Walcott fit, Thomas Rosicky fit, uh, Alexis fit. Uh, you know, you know, these guys who are out of the side and, and provide the kind of depth and the ability to cope with fatigue and tiredness and also just different qualities that a team needs yeah. throughout a season in, in different games. So I think that's probably where that comes from. That outlook, that negative outlook is because look, Arsenal are doing this and they're there or thereabouts year in, year out, season after season. But if they could just add that little bit more, then you, you're, you're looking at a team that could win the, win the title. Yeah, that's just true. Um, you know, I, I'm looking again, I'm looking at the team he put out, looking at the injury list and Arsenal's got a, a 
uh, a very clever little injury room here on their website uh, that gives us an idea of when these players are going to come back. Francis uh, Francis Coquelin, he was obviously very important. What is uh, what is his absence meant, and and how is that how is has Wenger covered for that absence? Well, it's interesting because his absence is also coupled with that of Santi Cazorla, right. um, and those two created a very good partnership. Um, Cazorla playing sort of out of position, you would say, because he was always a more advanced player, maybe somebody who played wide or further forward in the midfield rather than than playing deep. And it it felt like in in Coquelin's absence that Arsenal didn't have a player that could really work with Cazorla in that position. Um, but Ramsey has come back in, and I think Ramsey is a much more dynamic player. Maybe not as uh, skillful as Cazorla, or maybe not doesn't have quite the technique that he does, but he's a much more dynamic player with a bit more end product. You know, since he's come back into the team, he's got two assists and a goal in two games. Um, so I think what it's meant is that Arsenal's midfield has had to adapt to two different players in there and also two different wide guys because we've had Oxlade Chamberlain in and, and, and Joel Campbell in. Um, so that, that's been the, that's been the issue. I think what it is, is, is trying to find somebody who can really partner well with, with Aaron Ramsey. And that's probably where you would be looking at the future of the Arsenal midfield. I think Ramsey has got to stay in the center of midfield as long as he stays fit. Now it's about finding the right guy who can add the defensive part to the midfield but also complement Ramsey and and uh, in the in the very short term obviously Matthew Flamini is going to have to do that job but in the longer term uh, maybe in January um you'd be looking for Arsene Wenger to try and find that player who can come in and and add those qualities to the Arsenal midfield uh, let's go to one of those wide players you mentioned Joao Campbell uh, of particular interest in this part of the world um because he plays for Costa Rica uh, he's from Costa Rica mm-hmm. internationally and we have Costa Rican listeners to this show. It's been a while, and he was he was previously at Olympiacos, so he was doing damage against his his uh, his old side. Uh, he was on loan with Olympiacos from Arsenal. It's taken a long time for him to to get to this point. I mean, he's he's twenty three. He's by far an old uh, you know far from an old player. But give me a sense of what you see and whether or not he can be a, a regular contributor. Certainly, Wenger showed some trust in him yesterday. Well, look, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I thought that he was a guy that was on his way out. You know, last season he hardly played. He got loaned out to Villarreal. Um, he didn't do particularly well there. He played regularly, but he only scored one goal. Um, this season, I think had everybody been fit, and I know that's a laughable concept when we talk about <laughs> Arsenal, but I think if we had everybody fit, he might well have been out the door. Yeah. But then you could say the very same about Francis Coquelin. He was on loan at Charlton. Uh, Hector Bellerin, before he broke through last season, was about to go out on loan. Um, uh, Matthew Debushi got injured. Callum Chambers lost form. So what we're seeing is, is really interesting. I won't say it's unprecedented for it to happen as regularly as it does, but in the last 12 months, Arsenal have, have brought through three players who have been given a chance more or less because there's been no option. Mm-hmm. Coquelin was the last fit midfielder that Arsenal had. So they recalled him from loan. Uh, Debushi was injured. Chambers was injured or lost form. Bellerin was the only right back they had. Arsenal have had uh, Welbeck, Wilshire, Ramsey, Walcott, Oxlade-Chamberlain, Alexis, all these guys who uh, ostensibly would have been ahead of Campbell, all out. So he's been given a chance, and he's come in, and he's taken that chance. Now, I, I still think we need to see more from him. Sure. Um, 
to to really gauge his long-term prospects. But I think he's done enough in the last few weeks to show Arsene Wenger that he is a guy who can add some real depth to the squad. The 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 control, the composure, and the pass that he made for Arsenal's second goal yesterday were absolutely outstanding. Mm-hmm. This is a guy, he could only do that after playing a number of games and feeling part of the team and being a bit more confident and growing into his own role in the team. So the signs are, are really positive from him. Um, he scored a couple of goals as well. Uh, the goal celebration needs a lot of work. We don't <laughs> want to see that uh, 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 baby's pacifier or dummy anymore. Thank you very much. But, you know, uh, it, it's been a very positive... Um, it's been one of the positives of the Arsenal injury problems, if you get what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, certainly for Costa Rica fans, to see Joel Campbell getting his chance at, at Arsenal after, again, after some, some time, um, you know, figuring out whether he was going to be a part of it. So it, it, it came very close. And, and now the question will be, as players return, and, and some of these players are still a ways off, Andrew, as players return, what does Wenger do with his rotation? What he, does he do with, uh, with the players that, that he was previously relying on and uh, are back healthy? Uh, and, and, and obviously the, there's the league. There's the the Champions League coming up, uh, you know, the the knockout rounds coming up next year. You obviously have um, you know, there's an FA Cup that Arsenal has uh, made uh, some hay in the last couple of seasons. How does how, how does Wenger handle all of these things, and can he? Well, I think he can. Yeah, I mean, it's I I think it's going to be important actually to try and rotate. The the issue with rotation as well is that if you find a winning team or a team that's performing well together, your inclination is right. If it's not if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The problem is um, that sometimes not fixing it can break it, if that makes sense, in in that you overplay players or or they become fatigued and performance levels drop. So it's a difficult balancing act, I think, for any manager. But maybe what we've seen against Olympiacos is that even if there are a number of players missing or even if you do make a number of changes, then there's still scope to get good results and to see good performances. And I think as well, when we talk about players coming back, we are looking at January because um, Coquelin won't be back until the end of February. Cazorla, his season could be done more or less. Uh, He's had surgery and they say four months, but look, you know, these things have a tendency to go one way or the other. You know, he could easily, he could easily have a setback. It takes players time to, to regain form. For example, Jack Wilshire is not far away from a return to the first team, but is it realistic to expect Jack Wilshire to come in? and play his best football straight away. Yeah. No, it's going to take him weeks, if not months, to reach the, the the peak level that he wants to be at. So that's what you're looking at with some of these players that are coming back. Uh, Danny Welbeck, the same. So I think what, what we're looking at, as well as getting players back, is looking at the transfer market in January and and making some decisions that perhaps are a little bit tough or a little bit ruthless um, because of because circumstances dictate that, in a way. Uh, we, we know that, uh, that when the festive period comes around, when the, when late December and the, and the New Year comes around, that they can sometimes separate wheat and chaff in in the Premier League. We've got Leicester at the top, and it's a feel good story, and everybody loves it, and et cetera, et cetera. Arsenal's right there, and and looking at the fixture list, Andrew, um, it's Villa on the weekend at Villa Park, and then it's home to Man City, away to Southampton, and home to Bournemouth um, until the end of the year. Mm. What's the goal here uh, from those four matches? Uh, what what's the target for number of points? Well, I mean, I guess your target has got to be 12 points, doesn't it? I mean, you can't really go into the games and not think that, right, we, we want to win all these games. Right. Uh, it might be unrealistic uh, to do that, 
particularly when you're facing somebody like Manchester City, who have been, who they've definitely been hit and miss this season, haven't they? They've yes. been terrible at times. Well, they, they've also been very good at times, and they've been, they've looked like a team that is uh, of high quality and expensively assembled. So it's it's a matter of trying to get your way through these games uh, because they come so close together. You don't have the much in the way of recuperation time, particularly between the game against Southampton and Bournemouth. Um, but that's something all the teams have to deal with at this period of the season. Then I think that's when your depth becomes tested. Uh, and when your squad is a little bit short, as Arsenal's is right now, it might be a stretch to take 12 points from those games, but you know, it's, it's, it's one game at a time kind of thing, you know, uh, but they're in a great position at the moment. The league is crazy. Leicester are top. It's fantastic. I'm, I'm delighted to see them there. I think we find out a bit about Leicester in the next uh, few weeks, won't we? Cause I think they play Chelsea, Man City, Liverpool, Neverton or some Manchester United. I don't know. They've got four, four very difficult games. So we'll see a lot of, we'll see a, a bit about them too. I think it's one of those leagues where, where drop points while they're annoying and frustrating as a fan, they don't feel like they're going to be fatal yeah. in the same way that they were last season. For example, when Chelsea were so far ahead that you just couldn't afford to drop any points. Now everybody's dropping points and, uh, you might just be able to get away with one or two in different performances. Yeah. Before I let you go, Andrew, just give me a sense of, of how remarkable this season or, or unremarkable this season, wherever you place it, because obviously Lester being top is eye catching, but there, there seems to be a general, uh, it's either mediocrity or it's parity. It's, it depends on how you want to look mm. at it. Which way do you look at it? It certainly could benefit Arsenal. Um, and you know what? Uh, a title is a title. It doesn't matter how you win it necessarily. But it certainly seems as though some of these teams are going to be kept in the race simply because there is no dominant side. Yeah, well, I think that's good. Ultimately, that's good, isn't it? That there isn't one team running away with it. Like, you know, the idea of, of a, a single Bayern Munich, or imagine it was only Barcelona, you know, um, even a two tier race gets a bit boring, doesn't it? Which one of Real Madrid or Barcelona are going to win it? Woo. You know, um, so I think it's good in general for the league that there's, that it's more equal. I think there's, there's a touch perhaps of mediocrity, but I think it is more down to parity and more down to other teams with, uh, with better players, better investment in their squads because of the money that's available to them, uh, better tactics, better coaching. There has been, I think, an equalization of talent across the Premier League. And I think that's reflected in the league table at this moment in time. So, you know, ultimately it, it might be, might be the lowest number of points that wins the league yeah. for a number of years but if it's an exciting title race that a number of teams are involved in right to the end then I think that's uh, that's a great thing for the neutral and I'll just qualify that by saying of course I would prefer if Arsenal were <laughs> like the Bayern Munich or the Barcelona who are winning it week or season after season with with little or no competition but you know that's a that's an unrealistic goal <laughs> well, it's, it's, and, and look uh, it's uh, as you said good for the neutral the Premier League very interesting this year Arsenal with a with a chance to uh, to perhaps win a title and now the in the knockout rounds of the Champions League as well. Andrew Mangan from Ars Blog joining us. It's been a while. Good chat, Andrew. Thank you so much for the time. I'm, I'm going to let you go. My pleasure. Anytime. There goes Andrew Mangan. Great stuff from him. We will step aside. We will grab Eric Gomez and talk Mexican football with our good friend Eric. Don't go anywhere. Soccer Morning, WorldSoccerTalk.com.
Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. All right, here we go. Now it's time to talk to our good friend Eric Gomez. Lots of things happening in the world of Mexican football. He joins us now to go over all of them. Eric, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Uh, like I said earlier when we were talking before coming on the air, it's uh, just really cold, so I'm trying not to get my teeth to chatter as much as possible. All right. Uh, you know, hang in there. I, I know maybe the, the wardrobe is not a, a, a up to snuff sometimes when you get a little cold snap in a place like Mexico City, uh, but we do have uh, we do have some soccer to talk about, so, so keep yourself warm over the fire that is Tigres and Puma, uh, Pumas in the uh, in the Liga final. Uh, set the stage for me. First leg tonight um, at Tigres. Obviously, the, the big spending side. I imagine they have to be the favorite from a talent perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's strange to talk about any team in any playoff format. And I think MLS fans will, will definitely um, heed my words in this sense. I mean, you know, getting the number one team. Uh, you know, in, in MLS's case, the Supporters Shield winner in in the final is is a rarity, and and it, it's so much so in Mexico with the way that the playoffs have been formatted for so many years, and uh, now it's 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 a pure away goals tiebreaker, and even then you still get big surprises uh, with lower seeds just coming up with with the goods and 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 moving on. Bumas was the just absolute best during the regular season. I don't think they've had a very good playoff run against Veracruz. They struggled mightily. Uh, a lot of really nasty talk uh, amongst the media and fans that uh, the refs kind of favored them in that series. And it happened again in the semifinals, you know, against America twice in that, in that series. They played America 11 to 9, uh, America with four red cards in, in that series. And, and they still needed um, to just escape. And I mean, America scored the penultimate goal in the 90th minute. They needed one more to go through to the final and force us into that Christmas Eve scenario that I talked about last week. It didn't happen, and and here we are. But Tigres, absolutely, from a talent perspective, is is the better team. You know, any any time you've got a guy like Andre Pierre Guignac, uh, you've got players like Jurgen Dom who cost 10 million dollars to Tigres right. uh, in the transfer market. Last summer, Javier Aquino, uh, Nahuel Guzman, the goalkeeper, an Argentine uh, standout and, and, and national team player. I mean, they've, they've got just an amazing roster full of talent. The only reason why they didn't finish higher in the table this season, I think it's worth noting that you know they were playing in the Copa Libertadores final. Yeah, yeah. So they pretty much took off the first month of the season in Mexico in order to get uh, geared up for that. And uh, you know, to, to no, nobody's surprise, they lost most of those games. Um, but they finished strong, and they're they're on a 13-game unbeaten run going into this final series. Um, so the consensus amongst fans, amongst media, is Didas is the favorite. And even even with Pumas being the better team over the regular season, they're not finishing strong. So it's 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 only logical to think that Didas will continue on this run. Yeah, as you mentioned, the Copa Libertadores uh, run took a took a lot of attention from Tigres, and and maybe they would have finished higher on the table. Uh, when you when you look at the way this uh, particular tournament has played out, I mean, of course, as you said, maybe it's a surprise to get the top seed in the in the final because that's the nature of playoffs. But in terms of of who the best teams are. Maybe you had Tigres on paper, 
but they had to do the job. And, and, and Pumas, I mean, are we talking about surprising results in any particular way? Well, I think it was surprising to see them struggle so mightily okay. in the playoffs because you look at the first 17 games, the regular season, and they were just on fire. They they scored 37 goals. They had the best offense in the entire league, and they allowed 20 goals, and they were the second-best defense in the entire league, um, only only behind Tigres. So <clears throat> this was a team that was exceedingly competent, exceedingly consistent over the course of those 17 games. I think it's more or less a a, um, a tactical approach that, Changed within Tigres over the over the last four games in the in the quarterfinals and the semifinals, that has forced them into a different style of play and that has created these <clears throat> these difficulties for them getting to the final. A lot of that has to do with their coach. You know, when Memo Vasquez is a a disciple of Tuca Ferretti. Tuca Ferretti, of course, being the Tigres manager and the the former Mexico interim manager. So I think we're going to get a very tight a very difficult final for, for both teams, and at least on offense. It's not going to be a complete eye candy for fans, especially for neutral fans, considering the, the, the level of talent that, that will be on the field, um, despite the, the talent level, rather. Yeah. Um, Good. But it, it's still difficult to think that a team that has shown itself to be so explosive, just so effective up front and so solid in the back, could go to a, I mean, to to compare and contrast a, a Jose Mourinho type type deal where you just you know you hope to score the first goal first and then you park the bus for the uh, for the remainder remainder of the match. Uh, you know, Tigres is um, has not had a whole lot of success. I mean, I'm looking at the the, the list of champions here. We've got what uh, three titles in the last 35 years. Um, that's that's probably below what they would uh, what they would hope for there. I mean, is is there a is there a legacy issue with Tigres? And obviously, how much does this spending put pressure on this team to go win this title? Yeah, I mean, Tigres in in I would say that they're new money. Even though Semex, the company that owns them, has owned them for quite some time, it was just never a priority for that business to just pump money into the team. Um, we've seen a pretty big change within Tigres over the course of the last five years. Uh, when they hired Tuca Ferretti, they, they mentioned that it was a long-term project, that they were going to sign some important players. And, you know, in Mexico, anytime you hear that, you take it with a grain of salt. But they've really responded, and uh, they, they did win a first league title under Tuca Ferretti back in 2011, which is their last league title. And they've always been in the mix over the course of the last four years. Uh, they've been in the mix, and they've tried focusing on other types of success. And uh, after a couple of... Uh, quick and dirty runs in the Copa Libertadores and in the CONCACAF Champions League, they, they really pushed towards that 2015 Copa Lib, and they were, they were really close. Um, so it's not surprising at all to see them at this point fighting for another league title. I just, you know, you, you tend to worry about how long a team's run is going to last, especially in the league like Mexico. You know, they might win the title this year, but if they don't, um, there, there are no guarantees in a league like Mexico. They might come back six months from now stronger than ever, but the you know history tells us that that's probably not going to happen. So it's not a legacy issue per se. I mean, they they've been pretty much at the top of the table, or they've been fighting for for trophies over the last five years. But um, before that, it was just it was difficult to gauge any team's success out of outside of Mexico City, outside of Guadalajara, and maybe even Toluca. 
um, as a, a, a true contender. We've seen some teams rise with the short season format and the Liguilla format over the course of the last 20 years, but Tigres is definitely new in that regard. Uh, you know, it's, I don't know that this is a big deal in, in Mexico. It's certainly interesting from an American perspective and, and having grown up with the sporting structures we've got here, Eric, and, and obviously you're familiar with them as well. Uh, you know, our university teams are, are, are amateur teams and they're all competing against <laughs> other universities. And both here you have two teams that are representing uh, universities. I know, like, obviously these, there's a bit of a divergence of, of how that developed in Mexico versus how it developed in the United right. States. But just, you know, give me a little background here for people who might not understand why we have, you know, UANL and, and, and UNAM as, as the, the, the universities attached to these two clubs. Yeah, it's a very Latin American practice. Um, I think in Mexico, it's a hybrid between what has happened in Argentina and Chile and Ecuador and other countries in South America where the university uh, attaches its prestige and attaches its economic resources in many, in many cases to give birth to that, to that team, to give birth to that institution and to allow it to operate under less stringent laws and, and less stringent economic measures than you would have for privately owned clubs in Latin America. At least that was the case 50, 60 years ago when these, when, when this started happening in Mexico. It's been happening a lot longer in, in, in other South American countries. Um, over the course of, you know, these last few decades, that influence that has held over these teams has kind of diminished, at least economically speaking, because in the end, the team's president or the, uh, or, you know, the board of directors is usually people on that faculty, on that university staff. But there are uh, other privately owned companies that have come in and that have basically leased those teams for, at least, you know, in Tigres' case, for 99 years with Semex. Uh, Pumas is a little bit different. Pumas is still technically owned by the university, but private donors come in and take the reins of the team for a certain amount of time, usually um, when that university president that allowed the um, the operation to go through is is, is there and working. Um, so, you know, in Pumas' case, there have been some pretty notable people taking charge of that team, economically speaking. You had Carlos Slim, uh, the world's second richest man and uh, part owner of Leon and Pachuca. He, he owned that team within a five-year stretch, 2000, 2005, and that was exactly when Pumas had a, a pretty brilliant run of success with Hugo Sanchez in 2004. So it's, it's a strange relationship because as far as I can tell, Tigres and the university basically have no relationship now other than, than the name and, and the, uh, the fact that, uh, that they still play in the university stadium. Right. Uh, Pumas is a little bit different. But there have been other cases in Mexico, you know, obviously, uh, Udeje, Leones Negros, the team that was relegated last year, or last season rather, um, Uaje, the, uh, University of Guadalajara, another university team that, uh, essentially folded and, uh, is coming back now in the second division. Um, it's a pretty precarious relationship when you don't have your finances set and when you don't have a sugar daddy to just come in and basically take care of things the way the Tigres do. But Bumas has been pretty effective in that, in that regard. They've been able to find people who have a deep love for the team and deep pockets. Uh, and that's pretty much why they have been, uh, relevant in Mexican football for the last 50, 60 years. 
So it's it's a strange relationship, but you know, rest rest assured, you're not seeing 18, 19, 20 year old kids who study in the universities suiting up for these teams for uh, no salary the way that you would have it happen with the NCAA and in the United States. It's uh, not. It's not backing. Yeah, it's, it, that's good background uh, on on that situation. And as you said, it, uh, it, just because both of them are still carrying the name of the university doesn't mean the relationships are exactly the same. All right, let's let's move on before I uh, run out of time with you, Eric. Let's let's talk about a couple of rumors that have bounced around um, with uh, with Mexican players, certainly te- uh, players who have featured with uh, Mexican uh, national teams. Uh, one of them is Carlos Vela. We we had heard that there might be something done on the weekend of the MLS Cup. It, it didn't happen. Uh, I, I don't know that it means anything is dead. And we did we, you did report here that there was a meeting um, in Columbus between representatives of Carlos Vela and MLS. Any word on how anything uh, went there? Right, and I uh, read yesterday that Grant Wall pretty much supported that that report that there were meetings and there or there were at least conversations at MLS Cup between uh, Velo's reps and uh, and MLS. Um, you know, we're hearing again that for obvious reasons and and for um, for everybody's um, to everybody's knowledge, first right of refusal is is Colorado. We all know that. Uh, we've heard other teams being involved in potential negotiations with Vela to try and pry that uh, discovery claim from Colorado and try to get him somewhere else, preferably Chicago or even San Jose, I've heard. <clears throat> other than that, I think what really interested um, me over the weekend was the fact that Vela found these rumors to be so prevalent that he had to address them somehow on Twitter, and he did. You know, he went on Twitter and said, well, the only thing that's going on for me on Sunday is a game right. with Ralph Sociedad. Yeah. Everything else is just conjecture. It's just rumors. But this is a guy who rarely gives out these types of public statements. So I always, every time that I, I see a player that is not necessarily media friendly come out and give these types of statements, you know, for whatever reason, it usually means the opposite. And we saw something similar with Giovanni DeSantis over, over the course of, uh, of, of his negotiations with the Galaxy. Uh, they come out, they deny it, they deny, 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 and then weeks later, months later, you're you're sitting uh, next to a chair, next to a chair that has Don Garber in it, you know. So I wouldn't necessarily call these negotiations dead or or, or, or say that they're any less likely to happen now that Bella has tweeted it out. I always felt that it was a long shot to have something announced on Sunday. There are a lot of legal loopholes that you would have to take advantage of, especially with the European transfer rules. You're obviously, if you're MLS, if you're a particular club, uh, going to be wary about paying that $16 million release clause that he has. So I didn't, I never expected Vela to come out on Sunday and say, uh, you know, come to MLS. But um, I certainly expect the negotiations to be ongoing. This is not going to be a, a very a simple operation by any means. Yeah, so, so, you know, we're, we're still working on, on getting any type of information that, that might uh, clear this up. But as far as I can tell, it's, it's still ongoing. Yeah, I think a lot of this may hinge on whether or not Sociedad decides to drop that, that demand. And the release clause is $16 million. Uh, that's, very, that's a lot of money for MLS to commit to. Um, perhaps they're trying to negotiate that down. Whether or not they're successful remains to be seen. I mean, I don't know why Sociedad would necessarily just accede to those requests, uh, depending on how Carlos Vela feels about making a move. All right, let's move on to Marco Fabian because his name has come up 
uh, linked to MLS as well. Um, you know, we know a little bit about, about this player and, and I've seen him play. Uh, he's at Guadalajara. What's the situation with Marco Fabian? Yeah, Marco Fabian is one of those players who has been linked to MLS for quite some time now. I remember when he was essentially loaned out to Cruz Azul for one year, um, it was more likely for, for time that he might be going to MLS. Uh, back when Jorge Vergara owned Chivas USA, that was always a possibility. Other players like Angel Reina, who are also on Chivas, have been linked to MLS for quite some time, and that, you know nothing has ever come of it. But uh, in this case, with Marco Fabian, it was especially interesting to see his name linked to a specific team, one that has not even uh, debuted in MLS in Atlanta United. Uh, so essentially, the ESPN report that I cited yesterday uh, reads like this. Uh, Marco Fabian would go to MLS with Atlanta United, uh, if MLS pays his $4 million release clause with Chivas. After that, since Atlanta United is still a year away, uh, you would see Marco Fabian being loaned out to a European team. This is essentially a way to appease Marco Fabian. You know, I, th- I don't think anybody's sure, 100% sure, I don't think he's sure that he wants to play in MLS at this stage in his career. Uh, but if somebody allows him to at least go to Europe and get, get a cup of coffee with with a Portuguese team, with a French team, whatever, uh, that might make him a little bit more open to the idea uh, of coming to MLS and, and proving himself with another, other, another team. The relationship with Chivas at a um, ownership level, at a management level, has been strained for quite some time now. The relationship with the fans is, is a mixed bag. I think when he went to Cruz Azul a year ago, um, it was kind of a fresh start for him, and we saw him play some of his best soccer yeah. in in that space of time. Um, when everybody expected him to go back to Chivas um, 12 months ago, uh, you felt like it was kind of the beginning of a new dawn for him, but it really wasn't. Chivas is, is, is of course, in dire need of a leader. Um, they've been out of the playoffs for basically a year and a half. They're, they're still in the, rele- in the relegation race, and they brought in some pretty high-quality players uh, in the winter transfer market, Guli Peña or Belin Pineda. They're still talking to Al- Alan Pulido. So it's a very interesting time for Chivas, and I think uh, uh, you know, Fabian's time with, with them might be coming to a close. What better way to cash in if you're Chivas uh, by saying, well, we're not going to negotiate, we're not going to sell them, and basically force MLS to pay that release clause? I was going to make an observation of my own, but I think I'm actually going to set you up to 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 tell me from your perspective, uh, from the Mexican side of things, um, a little bit more informed. What's the commonality between, and obviously there, not all these deals are done, and we don't know that Vela will end, here, end up here or Fabian will end up here, but what's the commonality between Giovanni Dos Santos, Carlos Vela, and Marco Fabian? Well, we talked about Giovanni and Carlos Vela last week in the sense that, uh, well, at least in Carlos Vela's case, you, you get the feeling, or he's said it out loud, you know, soccer is not really his priority. Um, it's his job. You know, he, he doesn't watch soccer on TV. He doesn't indulge in, in any interviews. He's just a guy who happens to play soccer. Giovanni Dos Santos and Vela played together in, in that U17 team that really broke the mold for Mexican soccer in general back in 2005. And a lot of expectations were placed upon them. I think you'd say the same for Marco Fabian because he was on that 2012 Olympic team that, that brought home the gold medal. 
a lot of those players just can't handle the pressure and can't handle the media attention. For a time, Marco Fabiano was really, really on the media's bad side. It was, I mean, you were getting TMZ-like reports from Mexican media. Well, we saw Marco Fabiano at the bar, and he was drinking uh, the day before a game. It was, it was really that type of tabloid coverage that um, would mark Marco Fabian um, regardless of where he was, whether he was at Cruz Azul, whether he was at Chivas. And that, is, that reputation has really never gone away for him. So I think you have three guys who are insanely talented, who are capable of, if they really wanted to, playing at the highest level. And for whatever reason, that potential has just not come to pass. Um, and I think they're... They're analyzing MLS as a great option to, A, you know, prove the doubters wrong. I'm going to be the best I can possibly be and uh, show people that uh, regardless of where I play, I- I'm the best. And B, it gives them an opportunity to make a lot of money and to do so in, in an environment where they feel, and this is you know, generally their perception, or they're not going to be judged as closely as they would be if they were in Europe or if they were in Mexico. Right. So, that that's that that lifestyle and that 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 I don't know that thought that it's going to be better for them in MLS than it would be anywhere else, uh, and just basically running away from the critics or getting a fresh start yeah. is really interesting for for those three players. And I think you're opening the door for more players to come in, uh, Mexico national team players in the future, because everybody is getting in Mexico, at least they're getting used to the fact that MLS is a viable option for some of their best players. So the sting is slowly starting to wear off and you're not going to get uh, situations where the national team manager is going to come out and say, well, you know, I don't want these guys playing in MLS. I want them playing in Europe because it's, it's, it's going to continue to happen regardless of, well, of what and, public and opinion dictates. At, at the moment, Eric, you've got a former MLS coach in charge of the national team. So certainly, you know, he has some recognition. I mean, I think it's a slightly different league the last time Osorio was in MLS, but he certainly has an eye on it. He's aware of, uh, of what it can bring competitively. I, I don't know that this is, Everybody sat around a table at MLS HQ in New York and said, we're going to target this type of player, the Giovanni Dos Santos. And, and they're different type of players in, in personality and sometimes in what can, that they can do. But they're certainly all attacking players with incredible talent who maybe have underwhelmed on some occasions, found it difficult, found the media attention too much. Let's go after Dos Santos Vela. And Fabian, and and I, I mean, even if it if it was a strategy, then I think it's fairly brilliant from an MLS perspective. Absolutely, I, it's it's brilliant. It's timely. You're taking advantage of a huge part of your fan base uh, that is not just aware but akin uh, to these Mexican players because of their heritage, and uh, you're going to be able to exploit this for quite a long time because. Outside of a few teams in Mexico, nobody's going to be able to pay the type of salaries that MLS uh, is going to be paying across the board. Um, you know, even you're talking about expansion teams now. What is LAFC going to be able to bring to the table? What is Atlanta United going to be able to bring to the table? You've already got big name, big spending teams in Orlando and New York City, in Los Angeles, in Chicago, elsewhere. I mean, you, you also have cycles with ownership. At times, and we've seen it in MLS, where teams decide to spend big and go after a certain type of player, which would be the case with, you know, Carlos Vela in Chicago. Uh, you saw it with Cuauhtémoc Blanco back in 2007, and um, and and everything worked out great. Um, I, I fully expect this to go beyond fad status and to give us uh, the opportunity as fans to see top name players, top name uh, Mexico national team players in the 
MLS fold. Um, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, ultimately, for the Mexico national team and for the Mexican you know, soccer system in general, well, that remains to be seen because it's not. It's definitely not the same for Giovanni Dos Santos to be fighting for minutes in Villarreal than to be a just a, a unquestioned starter for the LA Galaxy. Yeah. At the same time, it's not the same for Giovanni Dos Santos to be playing against the likes of Real Madrid and Barcelona than to play against, you know, Colorado Rapids and the Philadelphia Union and no disrespect to the fans of those teams or the league in general, but I think we can all agree that it's not the same. Sure, sure. Uh, interesting times. Um, we, 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 I, I took you a little bit long on, on the Ligia final. I took you a little bit long there. Uh, I was going to give you an opportunity to, uh, you know, just sing the praises of some of the Mexican players in the Champions League, but we don't really have time for that, Eric. Uh, if you'd like to, I mean, obviously Bayer Leverkusen didn't make it to the knockout round, but that does not take away from what uh, Javier Hernandez has done in that tournament or done for that team. Excuse me. Yeah, in general, he's been fantastic. Twelve goals in eleven in, in his last eleven games. I mean, he's found his stride. I mean, this is the type of player that we all knew that Chicharito could be with with that type of confidence and, and, and just the minutes, you know. And I tweeted this out a couple of days ago. Going into that game against Barcelona, he basically had the same amount of minutes uh, with Bayer Leverkusen that he had with Real Madrid all season, and the parallels were uncanny. I mean, you, you give this guy 90 minutes on the pitch, and he's going to be able to produce. Um, sometimes you give him 20 minutes, and he's going to be able to produce. So just a fantastic season for him. Eric Gomez, Eric Gomez 86 on Twitter. He is a must follow for, for many reasons. A lot of them about football, but, uh, he's just a good guy to follow. <laughs> Eric, uh, appreciate, stay warm. Appreciate the time. And, uh, I'm sure that, I'm sure the weather will change shortly. I, I found a blanket. <laughs> so I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> All right. Eric, appreciate the time. We'll talk to you soon, man. Bye-bye. There goes Eric Gomez. Great stuff from him. We will step, step aside and have some time to talk to you on the phones. Let's do that now. Let's rush, rush, rush. Soccer Morning. WorldSoccerTalk.com. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. All right, we're back on Soccer Morning, and the phone lines are open at 646-832-3909. That's your phone number. Go ahead and give me a call. We can talk about Tam. Damn, Tam. You know, all right, first of all, I am accustomed to, uh, I I am accustomed to the, to the to the use of letters to represent things. I mean, what do we what do we call that? Those I mean, there's I, I've heard heard them called initialisms, which I think is the correct the correct usage. But but abbreviations, I, I or or acronyms. Excuse me, acronyms is obviously the word we use most of the time. I'm accustomed to them. I'm I grew up as a military brat. Everything in life is an acronym. Everything you have, you go to the, the, you go to the, the BX to get your, you know, to get your, your, your stuff, your, your, you know, you, to, to, to buy stuff. You go to the, um, you know, there's just, there's so many. I, my dad worked for SAC and there was this and that and the other thing. And, uh, I, I, so I'm accustomed to them. At the same time, MLS uses them too, entirely too much. And it would be nice to get away from them. It would be, it would be nice to get, 
MLS rules that don't require explanation that goes beyond 30 seconds. I mean, that's, that's the frustration every time MLS does this thing. Changes the rules, adds a new wrinkle. You, you think even the good parts of it are mitigated by the fact that, man, it's another thing I gotta follow. Another thing I gotta track. Not, not only do we have allocation money, which in and of itself is a, is a confusing concept. Now we have targeted allocation money. Okay. I got Tim Singleton on Twitter, T Singleton VT. If MLS, MLS Players Union did CBA right, would TAM be necessary just a few months after signing the deal? TAM is just an expanded salary cap for those teams that want to participate. It, it is. And it's also, again, uh, an expansion of the salary cap to a point that benefits teams who want to bring in new players. It does not benefit. I mean, the, from a players union perspective, TAM is not going to, it's not going to directly impact uh, the largest part of their base. We're not talking about teams that are going to use TAM in most cases to keep players they have already in their team or to give a raise to a player already in their team. It might happen occasionally. In fact, a lot of people make the joke, of course, that this is the end of the, this is the result of the negotiations over how the LA Galaxy can keep Omar Gonzalez. And yes, now they can keep Omar Gonzalez. I think, I think, because there are some questions, again, the application of this. I mean, let's just look through, let's just look through the, the, Press release from the league. Okay, here's your terms of how it can be used. Similar to allocation, general allocation money, targeted allocation money may be used to sign new or re-sign existing players and may be traded. It's a tradable commodity that's important to remember. Clubs may use a portion of or all of the available tar- targeted allocation money to convert a designated player to a non-designated player by buying down his ba- salary budget charge to at or below the maximum salary budget charge. You with me? If converted during the secondary transfer window, the designated player may earn a maximum of $1.5 million on a prorated basis. If targeted allocation money is used to free up a designated player slot, the club must, must simultaneously sign a new designated player at an investment equal to or greater than the player he is replacing. Got that? Clubs retain the flexibility to convert players bought down with targeted allocation money into designated players if they have a free designated player slot. Targeted allocation money and general allocation money may not be used in combination when signing or re-signing a player or when buying down the budget charge of a designated player. Either targeted allocation money or general allocation money may be used on a player in a single season, not both. Okay. I'm, I'm My head's swimming, but... A player must earn more than $457,500 per year, the 2016 maximum budget charge, to qualify for targeted allocation money. The compensation ceiling for such players is set at $1 million per year unless amounts are applied midseason to an existing designated player adjustment or to targeted allocation. The minimum budget charge for a player compensated with targeted allocation money is $150,000. Anybody following on that? I mean, look, it's... It's simple enough language. It just gets convoluted. And ultimately what's important here is whether or not this quote-unquote investment, and again, the league is trumpeting, trumpeting this investment as $37 million put into their, uh, into their player, player salaries. By injecting an additional $37 million into the system, our clubs will be able to strengthen the depth of their rosters by signing more high-quality players, said MLS Deputy Commissioner Mark Abbott. 
We saw immediate dividends this past season with the initial investment in targeted allocation money, and our owners believe that an addition, that additional spending, especially for players who will impact the middle of our rosters, will make MLS even more entertaining and compelling. And I have no doubt that on some level, all of this new money, $800,000 per year over the next two seasons, will make an, a difference in the quality and depth of these MLS teams. I think this is, from that perspective, flat out a positive. But again, you get into the details and the application and why this is necessary and how they're applying this twenty, this $37 million. And it's not, it's not just an across the board, here's more cash, go spend it how you want. Which I think is, I think is what we want to see as fans at this point. I think we're ready for that. I think we want to, as fans, I think we want to see MLS say, you know what? Forget this rule, and this is targeted money, and this is allocation money, and this is homegrown signing money, and this is GA money, and this is that money, and this is the... No. Give them an extra $800,000 or $900,000 if you're including this homegrown money, and just say, do what you want with it. Throw it into the pool. Now the, now the salary cap is $4 million or whatever it is instead of... What's the salary cap this year? I mean, that's the thing. I mean... Okay, cap, budget, it's soft cap because of all of the, the the ability to buy things down and spend above the cap on designated players. And I mean, it's it's like they don't want us to know how much they're spending. Wait, what? They don't. I got Sam in Seattle on this topic. Hey, Sam. Hey, hey, how you doing? Doing well. Little. Hey, um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the... Uh... MLS TAM rules and, you know, all the new... It's such an ugly thing. Rules it's such an ugly sound to make with your mouth, too. TAM. TAM. I mean, what is TAM? It sounds like... <laughs> it sounds like... like It sounds like a, a, a some food you would find at the dollar store, doesn't it? Like, oh, let, let me get a can of TAM. <laughs> let me slice up some TAM. Ew. Go ahead. <laughs> no, yeah. Just, they, like their, they like their acronyms. And they like having their some roll off the tongue. It means they get to write less in their, in their press releases. Um, I was just thinking, the fact that they're putting in all these new rules, is this kind of their way of ensuring that as the league expands, as they grow to, you know, 28 teams or however much, um, however much it is, is this their way of making sure that the league stays competitive? Is this the way of being sure that when the new clubs come in, they have the same ability to sign in these big names, to bring in all of these bigger players that all of the established clubs do to ensure that the league stays competitive even when there's you know, so many more teams. Yeah, sure. This is, I mean, so everything MLS does is based on parity and competition. I mean, everything that they do with these rules is meant to keep everything, not only keep things level, Sam, it's not just about the, co- the competitive environment and then the parity. It's also about them being able to control salaries. So you create, you create these rules and you create these systems and you deny players the ability to move from team to team freely because that depresses salaries. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it just, it seems, I don't know. I mean, yes, I know MLS is a growing league. Yes, it's still relatively young compared to every other soccer league in the world. But, God, the rules just seem archaic when it comes to this sort of thing, the thing that you give the league so much control to Mm -hmm. create parity and those sorts of things. How long do you think MLS, how long it'll be before MLS finally reaches a point where 
you don't have to have all of these acronyms and rules and I th- control of player movement. I, I think until uh, I mean until revenues are such the the size of the money that they're bringing in, the amount of money that they're bringing in through television and, and other sources, and, and MLS is much is actually very good, I think, business wise from mining uh, mining sources that aren't just television revenue. But until until that money reaches the sort of tipping point where we no longer even have to worry about controlling salaries and they can compete on an open market, you're not going to see that. And that could be a very long way away. And I think it's a matter of, um, you know, you know, it's a, it's it's a matter of these owners being invested in soccer beyond, you know, I, I it's hard it's hard to it's hard for me to, to to put to frame this one. I had I had a thought beyond just the, the revenue streams. There's there's other reasons that they're controlling this, and it, and it may be, you know, it just may be a situation where the people that are still around from 20 years ago can't let go of the reins because they're scared of what might happen. I, I mean, it's 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 just yeah, a, yeah. it's a, it's a matter of of getting comfortable enough with where the league is, and and maybe when the growth stops, <laughs> Sam, when 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 the league not just when, when the demand right, yeah. for expansion teams ends, when they're no longer getting hundred million dollar checks, when. Uh, when they see some some serious problems with whether or not the league is growing year over year, then you might see something drastic happen because now they've got to respond to the market. Yeah, that's the hope. I mean, yeah. you'd think that, you know, if Garber wants to live up to his claim that he wants MLS to be a competitive league by what, what is it, 2020? Like, you'd hope that these leagues, these rules would be out of the way because it seems like as much as they are to help facilitate big players coming in, you can't help but think that when a player looks at MLS and sees all of these weird rules, all of this control, all of this idea of weight, I don't necessarily get to choose exactly which club I get to go play for. That might, you know, scare some. Well, there, there are some. I think there are some. some there, there are some players. Who, th- thanks for the call, Sam. I got to move on. But I think there are some players who think about that and are conscious of that. But there are a lot of players who just see the see the the salary. They see what their paycheck's going to be, and they make their decision based on that. And and you know, as as Eric said about Mexican players. They come here not only because they're getting paid a lot of money, but because it's a comfortable living. They culturally they can they can be you know even if you don't speak Spanish, speak English, you can be fine in an American context most of the time. And they don't have the pressure from the press. Bill, you're uh, you're on the air. Hey Jason, I was going to talk about the Mexican players and what their fans think about them coming here, but I love talking about the, all the, the rules of MLS and all of this stuff. And I I hope the rules never leave. I. I I like the way this league is going. I know it has to improve, but I don't want to be like the English league or the Spanish league where there's four teams that are fighting for number one and everybody else no. who's trying to stay out of relegation. Okay. I hate that. I love the way this league is going. And I think, hey, John Garber knows more than us. And I, I trust what he's doing. I think wow. he's doing a great job moving okay. this league along. Yeah. And I think if you look at the... Go ahead, sorry. Well, no, I think business-wise, you're absolutely right. I, I do question sometimes whether he is in tune with some of the soccer elements. I mean, I'm not even just talking about pro-rel and that kind of thing, that that drastic change. I'm talking about some of the other soccer elements that, that maybe, look, as you said, I don't want MLS to be like a European league, but that doesn't mean that some of the things MLS does don't bother me on a soccer level. And of course, it's never going to be perfect, but like talking about the shower cap and all the money and everything else, I think the owners are saying right now, we wanted the salary cap to go up. And that's why we're throwing in this PIM. We're throwing in all these other little yeah. things to get around the salary cap. They wanted it to go up. But the players, they stood fast on free agency. Free agency was going to be the breaking point of whether they go on strike or not. 
And I blame the players. It yeah. should have been money. Free agency means nothing unless the money is there for these players to move around. They should have been screaming and yelling, we want the salary cap to double, to triple, whatever they come up with. And I would have been fine with that. But they stood fast on free agency. Yeah. And now the owners were able to say, Ah, all right, we're going to give you free agency, and we're also going to give you more money. It's such a unique situation. Bill, thanks, man. i got to run. I'm hitting up my top limit here on the show. But it's so interesting to consider the differences in the way that the MLS Players Union has to operate when uh, when negotiating a, a new CBA because of the international market, because of the international nature of soccer versus the way, you know, the Major League Baseball Players Union does theirs or, or, um, so, some of these other, or, uh, some of these other, um, unions can operate within an American context. There, there is no other place for these owners to go for talent. They have to work with this group of players who are unionized. That's not the case in MLS that they can always go outside of U.S. borders and find new players. Even within American borders, there's a, a plethora of players. They may not be um, on the same level, but if the league decides that they're going to value the big-name foreign player over the American player, there's really nothing the American player can do except struggle for as, as hard as they can to keep the, um, the, you know, keep the limits on foreign players in place and, and go after, and, and that's the thing, the union doesn't even represent just American players. It also represents the foreign players who are currently in MLS. It's, it's a very complicated situation. When we talked about the league getting this new television contract, $90 million from ESPN, Fox, and Univision, we said they need to invest money in the player salaries based on that deal, that the that eventually those uh, television interests are going to come to bear on MLS and say, you have to invest more in your players, we're giving you all this money. That's this, to an extent. And again, uh, bottom line, this is more spending on players. So I don't know that there's a criticism on MLS there. It's the mechanism that they're using. And again, if you have an interest in, in whether or not the MLS Players Union as it currently exists and the, and the, contingency, the um, constituency of that Players Union is getting theirs. That's an open question here. All right. We've run up against it. Brilliant show today. Thank you so much to Andrew Mangan from Arsblog and Eric Gomez. Both Follow them both on Twitter. Uh, they're both uh, excellent uh, covering what they cover. We will step aside. We'll come back tomorrow with another episode of Soccer Morning. Ooh, that's loud. Friday edition of the program. Man, I'm ready for that. Stick around. The Sirius XM show today will probably be a lot about TAM and MLS, and it should be fun. Be there if you want to be there. You should be there. See you over there. Bye.